Have you ever wondered how much the things we do in our everyday lives actually contribute to global carbon emissions? When you think about it, there are so many different aspects to consider: how we travel, the food we eat, how businesses operate, where our energy comes from, and even the times of the days we use it. Whew! It's a complex world. But how realistic is it to find easy ways of reducing our emissions in our everyday life? The good news is, change is happening, and it's here. There are so many ways to do things differently, ways of living that reduce our contributions to damaging global emissions and climate change. I'm Max Lamana, and welcome to the Clean Energy Revolution from National Grid. On this podcast, we've already heard about how transport is becoming cleaner. With hydrogen planes and electric vehicles, we've met farmers who are turning their crops into fossil-free fuel, and even learned how the beer you drink is reducing its emissions. This time, we're zooming in on our lifestyles, our homes, our daily habits, our social lives, looking at the choices we could make to reduce our impact on the planet. Small changes, which could also make a big difference. And later in the podcast. Our guest reporter Laura Young, aka Less Waste Laura, is in a city which not long ago was at the very center of our clean energy future. This is the Clean Energy Revolution from National Grid. To kick us off, one aspect of life where we can all make change is food. The emissions related to food have a massive impact on the planet, from the energy we use to grow and transport it to the fuel we use in our kitchens to cook it. Food is a massive global enterprise, trillions of dollars in revenue every year, connecting us all around the world. And there's incredible choice. So imagine the changes that could happen if we could all change our habits around eating, cooking, and even food shopping. This is such a passion of mine, and I'm delighted to have two guests in the studio today. I love learning from people who are just as passionate about food and sustainability as I am. And here we have Tristram Stewart, who is the author of Waste,、uh, which is an amazing book, which shows how the way we live now has created a global food crisis and what we can do to fix it. He's also a farmer, founder of Toast Ale and Feedback. Hey, Tristram, great to see you again. Yeah, great to see you, Max. Plus, we also have self-titled food waste disruptor, also known as Legum Chef. Am I saying that right? That'll do. Yeah, I don't really know myself, to be honest. <laughs> also known as Martin O'Dell.、Uh, now, more commonly known on TikTok as the guy who freezes stuff, Martin <laughs> has amassed a huge following with his educational and comedic cooking videos, where he brings his energetic, positive vibes to the very bleak and serious topic of food waste. Martin, great to have you here. Thanks, mate. Thanks for coming along as well. <laughs> I wasn't going to miss it. <laughs> Let's just jump right into it. When we look into the food industry, it's an industry which does an amazing job feeding so many people, right? But we all know how much waste there is. How do you both feel about that? Well, food production is the single biggest negative impact that humans have on the planet. It's the biggest source of Deforestation, carbon dioxide emissions, by far the biggest user of fresh water. I mean, is the main reason why we're in the middle of a mass species extinction event. So the idea that more than a third of all of that production is needless because it ends up producing food that no one eats—it's pretty shocking.、Um, it can be depressing. 
until you realise that it's a colossal opportunity. My like views on the whole system is like it, it is broken, and there's people like Tristan that knows the inner workings of everything that happens. And I, as a person, was just like that scares me the thought of it all so I took a step back and I was like okay what is the one part that I could play a role in and it is the household thing I'm a good communicator I have a laugh I can teach people and like you said it is this thing of like cooking is one of the most creative fun things that anyone anyone can be involved in no matter your budget no matter where you get your ingredients from anything when we look into the big surprises in terms of energy being used for this food now is it the production is it the transportation is it the cooking the single biggest source of impact of food production is the land use. This means chopping down the Amazon rainforest to grow more food, chopping down the Southeast Asian rainforest to grow more food, Central African rainforest, the wetlands. All of these wild places are being put under the plough. And that land use change, which is a source of carbon dioxide emissions, loss of habitat, interrupting hydrological cycles, that is the single biggest impact. I did a little calculation uh, again, writing my book, in which I worked out that if you planted trees on all of the land currently used to grow food that is being wasted, you could offset 100% of the emissions from fossil fuel combustion every year as a result of that. Now, I'm not saying that is a viable plan, but it shows you the scale of impact that taking up land to grow food that no one eats actually has. Land and land use is is the big one. Now, you've been studying this for a, a long time, like you said. Are we wasting less? Yeah. And what are the big things that we, we, we still need to change? Well, one of the really positive results of 20 years of campaigning is that there has been a lot of change. If you look just at the United Kingdom, per capita food waste in British households has reduced by more than one-third. We now have a sustainable development goal, which binds all of the nation-states that are part of the United Nations, which is pretty much every country in the world, to the SDG 12.3, of which I'm a UN champion, which is to halve food waste by 2030. Now, that is very ambitious, um, but there is a lot of movement towards that. Martin, I, you know, you're <laughs> like myself, we're both constantly on our phones and responding to people and listening to uh, which foods they're perhaps throwing away. Have there been any kind of like surprises on your side from people when they mentioned, oh, I'm, I'm throwing away this, or maybe it's the education around how food is being cooked and prepared because, you know, again, a lot of energy is going into the production of food before it even gets to the home. So are there any kind of like surprises or elements um, that you see on your side. I tell you what, the, the one thing that I find really exciting, like, like Tristan was saying, that food waste was a thing, like, you know, way before I got involved, you know, it was always there. But then over the last, like, three, four years of my do, me doing my stuff, I've just, it's, it's popping up everywhere. Everyone is talking about it. And, like, even when you now mention it to someone, they're like, oh, yeah, Oddbox. Oh, yeah, Rubies in the Rubble. Oh, yeah, Toast. You know, these names are now not like a brand that is just sitting there doing its thing they are now like front and center and that's like the exciting thing and even like i've done quite a few brand deals recently of companies that aren't dealing with food they're like they want to come into the message they want to be involved they have to be involved in the message right so like being within the space is super exciting but 
talking to people consistently, especially on TikTok, they're like on it, right? And these people have over the last sort of six months gone, I found food way more exciting. And that exciting element has like made them be more conscious about what they're wasting. So it's this whole idea of, like, I was always front and center with statistics. I was like, because you know, 4.4 million potatoes waste every single day, 70% of all this. People switch off. And then I was like, if I flip what I'm doing and go, let's cook creatively, let's have some fun. And then the, the offshoot of this of people enjoying themselves, then create less waste. It's like a win-win. And the messages I get from people are like, I never knew you could eat cauliflower leaves. I never knew you could eat the stem. And as soon as you break down that barrier, people start going, oh, what? So I can eat the potato skin after I've peeled it from a potato. I'm like, of course you can. Have you ever had a jacket potato before? And they're like, <laughs> oh, you know, and it's these little things. I'm not trying to like bombard them with like you know, revolutionary ways of like cooking carrot top pestos. Previously on the podcast, we've looked at how transport is obviously a huge factor in reducing emissions. And we know that a lot of food is flown or shipped thousands of miles ending up in our local shops. Is it possible to select food which has been transported in an environmentally friendly way? And how do we find it? How easy is that information to come by? I've, I've, got, I've got a question for Tristan on this one because I know you'll probably have a wonderful answer. Um, but when <laughs> I first started like looking into food waste and transportation and all of that within the food waste world, and there was a lot of talk of tomatoes. Like tomatoes that are grown in the UK have more damage and impact than tomatoes that are brought in due to like the bigger picture. And I, I read that somewhere and I believed it. Probably but, read it in Waste. Yeah. Is <laughs> that page 25? Yeah. But it was, I suppose it's just like, you know, this is a question for me as well, like asking about where is this information that is like the trusted source that you can get all this from? Well, I don't know if I'm the trusted source, but <laughs> you but, are in this room. We're, all, we're leaning closer and closer to Tristan. <laughs> like, Tell us your well, story. it's quite controversial, but, but I mean, it's, look, the less we fly food around for sure, the better. That said, food miles has become, has been a somewhat overstated proportion of the total impact of food. If you were if you were going to get really into being a lean green eater, yes, you're going to want to look at food miles. But it's not the first thing you want to start thinking about. The first things that you want to think about are waste, of course, but also how much meat and dairy you eat. And there again, I think rather than going through in this kind of negative, oh, I feel bad because I had some asparagus from Peru uh, or uh, avocados from, from, from Chile or, or, or wherever, I think better to come at it from the positive, which is the more local and seasonal the food I buy, probably the tastier it's going to be. But like bananas being shipped from South America to come here, what, takes 30 to 45 days? And then when they get there, then they're, uh, you know, they ripe and then people end up throwing them away. So I just find the time that it takes for it, for those bananas to get to our own home and then for us to waste them just seems ludicrous. But shipping, bananas. relatively speaking, is a, is, a, is a low impact way of transporting. You can get a lot of bananas into one of these big ships. So although it does take a long time, each banana has only got a relatively small uh, impact on the planet. And I personally, I love bananas. I, I go dumpster diving still. And when I find, you know, sack loads of bananas uh, in, you know, they've been ripened. They've, they've got better as a result of being, uh, you know, left in a bin for a while. <laughs> I will bring them home. I will wait till they go black uh, nearly, and then I'll peel them, stick them in the freezer, and get them out on a summer afternoon and 
give loads of kids a banana whiz up, you know, with a, a splash of milk in it. Uh, it does really shock me when I see bananas being wasted, both by supermarkets and in the industry, and of course in people's homes, because this is such a resilient product and such a such a good one. It's so universally usable. Um, so yeah, ban- it is bananas wasting bananas. Do your kids uh, ever it, ask where those bananas are coming from? Oh, they know. They know. Oh, they I love absolutely, that. they know what bin ripened. Dad's means, going in the, you know. the dumpster again. Yeah, and they've got a they've got a peel around them. Martin, there's a TikTok you have where you <laughs> oh. are freezing, you're freezing bananas. Yeah, there's a few. Is it, is it, yeah, there are there are a few. Is it a change of mindset you think with consumers, people at home? Oh, I can do something with this. Yeah, it's it's the light bulb moment. Like I was saying about the potato skins and all of that. I, I'm like, number one thing is to solve food waste in your home before you start worrying about the ingredients that you bring in. So, like, eat the food, fantastic. Then move on to going right. Now I'm going to think a bit more seasonally because if you start going, you know what, Barry? Today we're going to have asparagus like and risotto, and then you're wasting that asparagus. You failed at the first step. It's like figure out how to like make your kitchen function. So. Getting people to reconnect with food is a massive thing, really. This sounds... You sound like me. This is... <laughs> I'm looking at myself, who has a beard, because uh, I can't grow one. But it's, it's, everything you're saying sounds just like what I would be saying. Um, and my next cookbook, which is coming out in a couple of days... Plug. Uh, <laughs> yes. I'll, I'll, send you, I'll send you a copy. I think you're already getting a copy. Um, the next cookbook is all about this. Is I asked my audience for two years... Uh, in 2020, I asked them for two years which foods they were throwing away the most and collected tens of thousands of responses. And 15 or 20 ingredients kept coming up over and over and over again. And I just took those 15 and 20 ingredients and I provided eight recipes to each ingredient. Um, people are throwing the food they already have at home and I want to I help people cook the food they already have. That's I instead that's, of going out and buying more food. Yeah, that, that's, such a, good, that's such, a, such a good point, Max, because, I mean, I, I'm somebody who... I. I literally, I don't think I've ever looked at a recipe, gone and bought the ingredients and then made that thing. For me, it's all about, oh, I've got a pile of, you know, aubergines and I've got a pile of tomatoes. What what can I make with them? The thing that I've tried to break down on my social media is giving people the confidence to cook like that. Because as people that are immersed in food, as people that are chefs, we have that knowledge to be able to create a recipe on the fly. But for people who are don't have confidence in the kitchen for us to go oh go and look in the fridge you've got a banana an aubergine and a tomato crack on they would be like i'm gonna make pasta and pesto and forget about those you know but giving people like you said like 10 different avenues of how to cook stuff like i'm really focused on showing people techniques that are like can diversify what they do in the kitchen so if it's like here's how you char grill and then they can look in the fridge and go, oh, Martin said I can char grill courgette aubergine it opens up doors speaking of recipes I'd love to play a little game of um, make your own recipe, build your own recipe here in the studio. We don't have food. Uh, make a dish. We are going to put a dish together visually in our minds, but it needs to have a low carbon footprint. Got so one. should we start with me? <laughs> yeah, let's go. Let's go with you. We're going what's to the, eat you. What's the, what's the <laughs> yes, that, that would be a very low carbon footprint. Low carbon footprint. Think of all the emissions he's supporting. going to produce for the rest of his life. We can offset all oh. of those emissions by eating oh, Odell sashimi. We won't cook me. Brilliant. Have, to have it raw. <laughs> We're not promoting cannibalism on the show. Um, Martin. Yeah. You have a plate in front of you. Yeah. Let's go with one ingredient, and how are you going to cook that ingredient? Is that going to be the base? Is that going to be a sauce? You can kind of throw in a, 
a wrench in there and say it's going to be a sauce because we haven't even created the base yet. So mine would be a bean base, like a like a butter bean. I love a butter, butter bean. bean. Okay, yeah. from a tin. From a tin, yeah, or a jar, maybe if we're being a bit more uh, on brand. <laughs> so you have, a, yeah, you have butter bean. What are you going? What are you doing with the butter bean? Oh well, look. So bonuses, they're already cooked, right? So if you get them from the mm. jar, you don't have to do much with them. And that delicious liquid that it comes in is basically like your sauce already. So I'd probably put a nice. I love harissa. Mm. I'm a harissa man. And then you've got a good base for a, a stew already. You'd uh, you would heat this up, right? Or are you yeah. eating it cold? Oh, I'd, I'd chow it down cold as well. But let's go warm. Let's go warm for yeah. the. For... Not, not very hot because we want to save energy. Yeah, yeah. But like yeah there you go. <laughs> nice one. Thanks, <laughs> Tristram. I just to say, I think that is absolutely on the money. If we want to create uh, a shift in diet away from meat and dairy and towards other forms of protein, the native grown beans. Ideally, in, in their dried form, which are much cheaper, you can store indefinitely and take a bit longer to cook, so you do have to sort of prepare for that. But I like a dessert, Max. Mm. So after my baked beans on whatever, Harissa, yeah. um, I, um, I made a really popular bread and butter pudding the other day. Um, and this was uh, a loaf of bread. I had got it out of a dumpster. Um, and it was just a bit stale. It was white bread. And I sliced that up and I, I put butter. You don't need to use the butter um, uh, on it. And then I I had, I do a lot of home canning, which is, um, you know, when you get a load of fruit and you buy those kilner jars and you cook it in the kilner jar and then it's preserved on the shelf more or less until doomsday. Um, you pop them out. And I put um, some canned plums in between each slice of bread. And then I poured the custard in the bottom and I baked it. And the kind of the lightness and tartness, they were damsons actually, very tart damsons, um, counteracted the thick and heavy richness of the bread and, and the custard. And it was, yeah, it was very, very, my friend said it was the best pudding he'd ever had. And so I'm going to make more variations of that with rhubarb or whatever. But using up an old loaf and sticking fruit in between, nice tart, light fruit, makes it a healthy uh, way of using up leftovers and god you know wherever you live in britain in fruit season it's unbelievable how much fruit goes to waste all of these trees laden with fruit dropping all over the pavements people with fruit in their gardens and they eat maybe like 20 apples and then the rest just lie there and rot free food available on, on every street corner basically and uh, so i'd really encourage people to get into kind of gathering up some of that fruit and finding ways of preserving it you know in, in regards to energy and there's a really, really interesting, neat trick. And, and I now cook my pasta in boiling water for two minutes. So I boil the water first, add my pasta, cook it for two minutes in the boiling water, turn the hob off, cover with a lid, set a timer for 10 minutes, and I come back 10 minutes later, the pasta is cooked. And it works like a charm every single time. So I save 80% of my, my gas or electricity by turning off the hob when I cook Wow, Max, thank you so much. It will continue to cook even if it doesn't cook quite as quickly. Um, Talking about cooking and preparing food, Tristram, is this a major factor when it comes to emissions? If we're using electric cookers rather than gas, how much energy could we save? You know, one of the things that people complain about in the messaging around being more sustainable, that you end up receiving so many different messages it becomes confusing, and the result of confusion is inertia. I tell you what, the one area, oh my God, it bugs me so much, I live with several different people, is boiling the kettle. Mm. People 
so often put more water into the kettle than they then use, leaving all of this hot water in the kettle that just sits there and cools down. People are routinely, you know, you boil the whole kettle and take one cup from it. That is nuts. What a waste of energy. What a waste of emissions. Just don't boil more water than you actually need when you're. I noticed when I used the kettle, I'd see the, the 3,000 watts. Through the, pr- the prices go up. It made me very conscious of what I was using. And I've always been that way. And that's how I got into food and looking at ways I'm riding my bike to work, I'm walking, I'm shopping locally. Martin, do you have any kind of tips or tricks with energy use? Yeah, so I went through a, a really mad phase of like immersing myself in my slow cooker. Like I got really obsessed with it and like all of the things that I was like doing and then you're like, I've just spent 10 minutes lobbing stuff into a slow cooker and then I just forget about it and then it just tastes delicious. It's brilliant. So I did a thing with uh, with Rat recently and it was all about doing this batch preparation and like how you can then have a, a, a recipe which is like a base that you can riff off. So it was like a, a, a beef mince base and it was like you had that as like a bolognese base and then what could that be altered into? And it was just like, you know, almost like a tree of recipes that you could take from one thing. And I think, you know, it's what I try and educate people again on another thing is like, what are the things that you can have as a versatile base? Like, do you spend time making an amazing curry base that has got no vegetables or meat in it? And then from there, you can put in your chickpeas, you can put in your toffee, you can put in your chicken, whatever. So it's like understanding this sort of like idea of going, right, let's spend some time doing something well, making it taste nice. And then when you take it out, it's very low effort or low energy to create something from that. If you go to somewhere like India, cooking in pressure cookers is absolutely the norm and it used to be and they've become old-fashioned and outdated but maybe times are changing using a pressure cooker i mean talk about your turn it on for two minutes and then switch everything off you can cook more or less anything in a pressure cooker that way and just let it as long as you you learn the amount of time each thing needs because you can accidentally massively overcook things in pressure cookers but Mm. if you know how how long each kind of food needs and you can look that kind of thing up and then get used to it. Freezes is like one of the most sort of like underutilized things in the kitchen, right? I My TikTok grew from me being stupid and great in frozen things. Like that's how it kind of just blew up. And the first one was ginger, like something that we all have in the house. It's like we either put it in the fridge or leave it out and it shrivels up. And then I put it in the freezer because I saw it on the internet and then I grated it and it was like Parmesan cheese. And I was like, this is, it blew my mind. Like you just use a little bit. So then the whole series escalated. It was like frozen chilies. It was like frozen garlic. It was all of these things. And then it evolved into making things that are like flavor sticks. So I was like, oh, what have you created this amazing sort of, I did this like fermented black bean stick that was like, had sesame oil and all of these like amazing flavor things. And then you could just grate it onto food. Let's talk about veganism. I'm a plant-based chef. I've been plant-based now six, seven years. I'm not over here waving the vegan flag telling you guys to go vegan, but I would love to kind of dispel some myths around the energy around cooking plant-based foods um, and what your take is on the effect of energy use and waste around plant-based and vegan cooking. Yeah, the anti-vegan league who are picking holes in plant-based diets because, oh, you know, avocados are very energy-intensive. Or oh, that's it, it, it's, t- it's so unhelpful. The single biggest thing you can do to reduce your environmental impact in the food area and probably of anything is to, as far as possible, reduce your meat and dairy consumption and go as plant-based as possible. For me... That's the way to frame 
the behavior change requirement. If you start talking about veganism, most people are not ready to completely give up all animal products and can be put off by this message that it's binary. You're either vegan and plant-based or you're a sinner and you're a meat eater. I think it's about less and reduction rather than the angels and the devils on, on two sides. The less you eat of those meat and dairy products, the better. The more vegans there are, the better. That's, that's, that's absolutely unambiguously uh, the case. I have friends that have converted from meat eating to uh, veganism and their their instant approach was meat and two veg. How do I swap the meat out for something to then eat vegan? So then they start having the you know, the, the different chicken products that are like the fake chickens and stuff because it's that easy step. I think when you try and leap straight into a full-on plant-based diet, you fundamentally need to understand that you can build a dish around lentils and pulses and all of that kind of stuff. So I think it's a confidence thing to be eating vegan food. And that's where you come in. If you're cooking whole plant-based meals, I would say you're using less energy because you can whip up, like going back to our butter bean dish, you just cracked open a can, threw it onto a plate, and mix it with some harissa. That required no energy at all. Looking into the future, is this something that excites you? What do you think the future of cooking looks like? I weirdly think that frozen, the frozen produce will uh, be big in the next couple of years. If that's you know, a, a boom in frozen med- ready meals or frozen ingredients that are ready to go. Because, you know, if you look at <clears throat> if you look at things like fish, you know, most of the fish you get is frozen. It's never really fresh. So I think there will be an influx into the market of ingredients that are caught at peak freshness, like we would say your peas or whatever. But I think there'll be more of that within the market. If the one thing in the future that I could encourage everyone to get involved in is, is pressure canning and, and canning food, those kilner jars that people put their dry beans in, they have been designed to cook food in and you're essentially making your own canned food. And my my delight over this is that then it's on your shelf. It's looking beautiful. It's reminding you that it's there. It isn't lost in the bottom of your chest freezer, never to be found again. It's, um, it's a very, very efficient way of producing a lot of food. So if I've got a roadkill deer I will make a huge batch of it and I'll have 20 cans, which is 20 ready meals, homemade, for free, sitting on on my shelf. And again, very, very fuel-efficient way of producing a large amount of food. And, uh, you know, my my pressure cooker is is giant. It can fit (laughs) 20 big Kilmer jars in it. Um, You can't get them in this country. You can get them in the States. You can get them in Asia, but, you know, they're more or less completely unavailable here. But I really, I mean, if there were one thing that I think should change for fuel efficiency, saving time, using up bulk resources when they become available, you know, there's a discount, get 20 crates of plums and just stew them all. You've then got a plum dessert to put into anything for about five years' time sitting on your shelf. Yeah, that that for me is a really big part of my... And it's huge delight. And it's a delight when you go back to it and you see it sitting on the shelf and you open it up and you can enjoy oh a meal. God, it absolutely. brings so much right, joy. Right there. Like one minute later, you've got a meal on the table. I did this last year. I went to the farmer's market and it was the end of the tomato season. Uh, excuse me, tomatoes. Um, we knew and, what you meant. You knew what I meant. Okay, great. Um, it was the end of the tomato season and 
the farmer said to me, hey, I have 25 kilos of just these leftover tomatoes. Do you want them? I'm going to give you a, a discount because they were going to go to waste. End up taking them home. I have this big crate of tomatoes and I felt, oh, this is going to be a great Christmas gift. This is the end of uh, August, September, I think, around that time. Whacked them all into the pan, cooked them down a little bit, but did a home kind of preserve, kind of canning method where I watched a YouTube video of an old Italian grandmother doing this. And I remember being a child and my grandmother and my mother would do this. So it brought up these like these memories of being a kid again and cooking food with my family or seeing them cook food, um, but made tomato sauce and ended up giving that as a lovely Christmas gift to everyone. Everyone was a little bit confused. <laughs> Why are you giving us tomato sauce? It's December. But then the story came. And that's where I think this wraps it all up with that companion. Beautiful. It was great talking to the both of you guys. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here and take care. Our guest reporter, Laura Young, a.k.a. Less Waste Laura, is in a city which not long ago was at the very center of our clean energy future. So here I am in one of the many green spaces in the city centre of Glasgow, where I live and where the eyes of the world were focused for COP26, the UN Climate Change Conference back in 2021. It was an amazing event with leaders from all over the world here in my home city and TV cameras on every street that I recognised. People hoping that politicians would commit to a greener and cleaner future. In the UK, the government has signed up to reaching net zero carbon emissions by 2050. Now that sounds a long way off and it's easy to ignore it or think, how do I fit in? But I find that exciting because there are so many ways we can change how we live and so many tools to help us. I'm going to discover how this city of Glasgow has changed since COP26. Are people making those changes? Are they thinking differently? Are they changing how they live and are they using their influence to create bigger system change? My journey with all of this started as a New Year's resolution, trying to think about how I could be more sustainable, cutting my waste and cutting my carbon footprint. And I've tried to make loads of small changes to my life. Calculating your own impact is hard, but I've looked at how all of these small changes have worked. I've managed to reduce my waste by about 90% and half the number of miles I do in my car through using public and active transport. And this is all helping the bigger picture because 80% of Scotland's carbon footprint comes from the things that we often use once and then throw away. I've moved across the city and I'm standing next to a road with railway bridges and arches and at the end is SWG3. It's bringing back a lot of memories of gigs and club ignites. It used to be a warehouse, but it's now a group of spaces buzzing with art, music and nightlife. And why I'm here is to see a project which will use heat pumps to harness the energy from clubbers' body heat. It sounds amazing, so I'm off to meet the operations manager. Hey, so it's Bob, isn't it? It is, yep. So I'm Bob Javaheri and I'm the Operations Director here at SWG3 in Glasgow. This is a really busy venue, you've got lots going on. I'd love you to show us a bit, but also tell us what is happening at this place. 
It's a multi-purpose like events and art space. Um, so it consists over three floors. The bottom two are the commercial sides. So that is where the, the venues are. That's It could be club concerts, gigs, art events, uh, exhibitions, anything at all. Uh, and then on the, the top floor of the building, uh, that's creative spaces, artists and design studios. Yeah, I remember being here for a couple of things. One was a, a gig, a concert, it was great fun. But the other was the New York Times Climate Hub during COP26 and it was really to show the diversity of the space that you have here. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the, when the New York Times came, that's uh, definitely one of our bigger uh, deliveries. Uh, I think one of the most memorable parts of it was them uh, bringing a living, breathing forest inside one of our spaces, which is absolute madness, but it worked fantastic. And uh, and those trees are still here. They've now been planted in a new community garden at the back just to complete that cycle. Something we've always said here is you could go to the exact same space. You could even go to the same event sometimes, and uh, it feels like you're completely somewhere else. It's just such uh, a flexible space, which uh, is what makes it so special. I would love to know about this new thing you've got going on, which is capturing body heat for energy. So if we jump through to the galvanizers just now. So the galvanizers is our biggest space. Yeah, so this is a massive space and looks totally different. I can see there's people setting up for things. Looking around, there's iron girders, there's exposed brick. It's kind of looking back to what it used to be. So this uh, was the Clydeside galvanizers for years. So there were acid baths in the middle and then they would drop. Uh, drop their metal beams in while they were being galvanised through the process. So, uh, so tried to keep as many original features as possible, but then turning it into a music venue uh, took uh, uh, took quite a bit of energy. Um, but yes, yeah, so now it's a, a soundproofed acoustic dream uh, with a high ceiling. So, and is this space one of the spaces that will be using this body heat energy collection? Yeah, ab- absolutely. So if we look above our heads, um, you can see six air conditioning units. So um, three of them are your very traditional hot and cold uh, air conditioning system. And then the three have recently been put in are connected to the new body heat system. So essentially all the heat energy that is collected together and some of the, the, the hot, sweaty gigs and club nights that will go on here, uh, that heat gets collected by those units, uh, transferred and refrigerant back to the, the heat pumps. Uh, and then either that energy is used to heat or cool other rooms or if there's no requirement, then it can get stored in the, the boreholes that are at the back of the building. I've been to quite a few gig nights where it's definitely hot and sweaty, but how many people would you need for that heat to rise and go up and enter into the system? Yeah, so so the honest answer is we don't know yet, Um, but it it really doesn't take too many uh, individuals in the space before you start noticing a temperature increase. Um, So it's only after we start testing it um, at just different levels uh, we'll actually understand what's the optimum amount of people for the amount of energy draw that we can pull. And it's a pilot, it's a test, but do you know how much energy you might be able to create? Yeah, again, not not yet. Um, So there was feasibility studies done into this probably about three, three and a half years ago now. And uh, I think there was some some crazy numbers getting thrown around there that got got us all quite excited. And since then, we've had to uh, amend the system. We've had to change the capacity. Um, We've had to reduce in some areas and extend in others. So I think uh, think right now we need probably six months to a year's worth of running it to understand if we have extra capacity that we can then take on to other floors or um, if there was a better way of setting it up. So, yeah, very much a pilot.
I can hear that you're excited about this technology and the passion that you have for keeping old spaces old but also bringing in new. What brought about this idea for you guys? About three or four years ago when we started really trying to look for um, more sustainable ways of, of operating such big spaces, um, we were, at the time, we were looking at uh, more sustainable heating options uh, and we'd uh, been approached by a company that were showing us ground source heating, which is essentially you're drilling boreholes and then pulling some heat energy out of the ground to, to power the systems. So while we were doing some of the feasibility studies on that, uh, we discovered that we actually have a, a very large cooling demand in the building so that there's already uh, quite an existence of heat energy uh, that gets wasted and just essentially dumped to atmosphere. So while doing those calculations, that was became the idea of, well, why can't we capture that waste heat and utilise ground source at the same time uh, and essentially use the boreholes as batteries if, uh, if we're creating too much of an excess, which uh, had never had never really been done before. Two, two technologies brought together together. Uh, and for the first time in a, in a space like this. In the galvanizers here, we can get 12, 1,300 people uh, for, for an event in here. So together, that's, that's quite a lot of heat generated, especially uh, if the music allows. So you've got hot and sweaty giggers coming into your venue. How does that turn into energy? So heat by itself is a form of energy and in, in this instance um, that energy is just wasted as it just gets dumped by your extractors or air conditioning to atmosphere but by capturing that heat uh, and then converting that heat into an energy source um, then, then it can be stored and used for later. So the, the, the boreholes that we've, uh, we've put in our community garden at the back, they can essentially act as batteries to house that extra energy. So we've got a a borehole array of 12 boreholes and that we've uh, drilled just going almost 200 meters deep each of them uh, at the rear of the venue so um, ground source heat is when you're extracting the heat energy out of the ground so um, that is part of this system but um, but also using liquid that's piped under the ground we can transfer the heat from the club through that liquid into the boreholes to essentially heat up at the earth down there and use use that as just a giant battery uh, just to hold that energy uh, for whenever we need it. And do you think this might drum up excitement for people to come and book you as a venue because of that sustainable angle? We've definitely had uh, a lot of interest just purely because of this system um, because it's important to everyone. You have a lot of artists these days and the riders are, are being far more specific about sustainability and waste, which, which is great because it's, if it starts there, then it will go around a lot, a lot quicker. So, so yeah, there's, there's definitely been interest specifically in the, the system and the, our wider plans. How does this fit in with some of the wider plans you have for reaching net zero as a venue? We've quite boldly set our own target of uh, to aim to be net zero by 2025. There's so much that you can do, uh, and quite rapidly as well. So it is a bold target, but it, it puts a good bit of pressure on us to try and uh, just try and get there quicker, which uh, which is great. And pressure not just on yourselves, but on the industry of the arts. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. So anything that can show a bit more permanence for, for the industry is uh, is really important. Even even just from a financial point of view, there's a lot of worry just now in the industry of places that won't be able to survive a year just with the energy prices. So uh, if, if purely for that point of view, there's it's yet another reason to, to be less wasteful and, and more sustainable for the long run. And, and uh, yeah, hopefully keep the industry uh, strong. Once you start making changes, you discover there are so many people doing the same thing. I've come to Kelvin Grove Park to meet three young people from 2050 Climate Group, an organisation which empowers Scotland's young leaders to lead action on tackling the climate crisis. Why don't you introduce yourselves? Hiya, I'm Anna McMahon. I am policy volunteer with the 2050 Climate Group and in my day job I'm an environmental analyst. I'm Vary Todoff and I work for 2050 Climate Group as our operations manager. Hi, I'm Gyan. Uh, I volunteer for the 2050 Climate Group in the Leaders Network subgroup, and I'm studying for my master's degree in sustainability and climate change at Dundee Uni. Amazing. We've got so much to talk about, but first of all, what are some of the favourite ways you've changed your life to be a little bit greener and a little bit cleaner? I tend to use my washing machine late at night so that it costs less to like run the machine than it costs during the day because uh, it's off off peak uh, uh, rates then. We recently got a smart meter installed in our flat and it's just having that display on so you can see your energy usage going up. It's just making me so much more aware of what are my energy intensive habits and things that might have seemed small to me, just like sticking on sort of a hot wash of the washing machine or taking a slightly longer shower. I can really see it racking up both in terms of the cost to me and that carbon cost that comes with it. So for me, it's just the awareness that comes first and then you can kind of see what you could start cutting down on or changing to save a little bit of the energy. I know with my smart meter, I'm running about going, what do I need to turn off to bring it down (laughs) to to see what's taking up so much energy? You know, often when I'm at home and I'm putting on the quite energy intensive appliances, I like to use when to plug in. It's the app from the National Grid and it tells you the best time to be doing those energy intensive activities based on how much renewable energy is coming into your home. And I just find that so helpful to kind of guide me with some of those things. But a lot of this can be hard big barrier is, is knowledge. I think people don't actually know that something very ordinary or, or trivial is, is is maybe an impact of climate change or, or, or their, you know, very ordinary regular action is leading to something that's causing climate change. But also like uh, uh, marketing and, and promotion. So if, if say, the, the, the app by National Grid it's it's a it's a very good app, but I don't think a lot of people know or realize uh, how it could be helping them. So I think you know organizations and and companies need to go out their way and promote you know more sustainable uh, practices or, or or apps or products they have. So. When I look at our city, I think I noticed change since COP26. I feel the city has more of a focus on sustainability and on clean energy and other practices. But do you think there's been a practical legacy left here in the city? I think yes, because I used to live in Glasgow uh, pre-pandemic and, and from what I can see now, especially after COP, you see a lot more green buses, electric buses. I think that's definitely a good sign. And another good point is that there are a lot more vegan um, eating options. So when you go out, there are more vegan restaurants and, and, and takeaway places now than it used to be before, I'd say, before COP. And, and I think there's also a sense of, of people realising what climate justice is, especially the things that COP highlighted for us. But I think they have got a sense of what it actually is. 
and what it can actually you know mean yeah following on from what you said i think the big impact was probably more social in terms of having such a huge um international audience come to glasgow i think on both sides it was probably quite um yeah an incredible opportunity to learn from people around the world and unlearn as well and yeah for them to see what was happening in glasgow and i think for us it definitely pushed us to look more internationally and hear more of the voices of how climate um, change is impacting people in you know the global south and in different contexts. When you first asked that question Laura I was actually thinking not really I hadn't really noticed any big differences physically across the city but now I hear you guys talking about it, it it definitely is there's an increased awareness just among everyone in Glasgow about the kind of things that COP shone a light on, like more people are talking about the circular economy, the just transition like you touched on, and the impact of climate change on the global south and things like that, that maybe people hadn't been talking about quite as much before COP26. I know one thing as well is businesses seem to be talking about net zero, and although it might not be perfect and it may be just as a target, actually they're thinking about what can we do? What are the steps we can take? And before, there was no targets, no aims, no conversation. So at least, you know, that's something. But do you think Glasgow compares well to other cities when it comes to sustainability? As as big a city Glasgow is, I think the city needs to be doing more and, and make things more accessible to a lot of people, uh, especially, you know, old people or people who are not, you know, really ed- educated about climate change or, or what it does to them. I think uh, you know Paris may be a good example, but but you know something as small or something as trivial as having a, a water fountain, and 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 public transport areas like like the the Buchanan bus station or the Glasgow Queen Street, you know, and that will enable people to not buy another uh, packaged water bottle. So I definitely think it's doing good, but I I also believe it could be doing more. And as a final question, and it might be a big one, how do we promote change? I think the key is being encouraging and not being judgmental. I think it's an area where people are all very quick to judge other people for doing certain things wrong or people can be very critical of each other. But I think the key here is just to encourage little positive steps because it does make a difference and everything that you can do in your own personal circumstances, it may be limited, but it's still important that you do what's achievable for you. So I think sort of just sort of inspiring people in a way that's fun instead of saying sort of don't do this don't do that or the way that you're living is unsustainable and trying to avoid that sort of competitiveness or superiority and instead just encouraging everyone because we're all trying to do the same thing i'd like to uh, say that i watch an unhealthy amount of football on on a very regular basis and a very big thing in football is is leadership who the captain is and and I believe that, you know, leading by example is, is a very good way of, of promoting change. If you do something right, it's essential that you're recognised for it. And, and that's something I try to advocate in, in the 2050 Climate Group very strongly, that, you know, celebrate the champions, celebrate the people who are actually taking action. They're doing good in, in the community or they're trying to be more sustainable. So it's very, very important that, that we do that. And, and communication if you know someone or if you ha- if you know some good product or good service or a good app uh, then you can uh, you know tell other people about it tweet about it put it on your social media and and text it and 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 yeah just spread the word 
it's the end of a great day meeting organisations and people who are really working for change here in Glasgow to make sustainable choices available probably around the world. I know I've felt really challenged to look further into the amazing businesses that are making sustainable changes but also continue to look at where I can make little tweaks to my own lifestyle to help play into the role that we have to reach net zero. Max, I hope you've learned something too. I sure have. Thanks so much to Laura Young, Tristan Stewart, Martin O'Dell, and the wonderful people in Glasgow who took part in this episode. If you'd like to find out more about how clean and green energy is part of your own world right now, you can follow National Grid on social media or visit nationalgrid.com. Next month, we'll be finding out how renewable energy infrastructure can benefit our environment and communities. Make sure you follow or subscribe to this podcast and don't miss it. See you then.